Thanks for joining Mustache Chris and I as we continue to discuss the mafia and particularly the vicious game of contract killers, Murder Incorporated. We've been examining a lot of the biographies of certain people, and there might be somebody who you're, if you know anything about Murder Inc. that you're screaming that we haven't really talked about, and that person is the person we're going to talk about today, Dutch Schultz. Uh, one of the most deadly and dangerous people in a group of deadly. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Dangerous people. So, Chris, um, who is Dutch Schultz and why should we spend some time talking about his story? Yeah, just going through the notes of like when we were going through uh, the history of Murder, Inc. And um, in the previous episode, we talked about a couple of the big murders that Murder, Inc. had uh, been involved in. And obviously, uh, we're going to have to talk talk about the murder of Dutch Schultz. but. Because I would, I would argue that's probably the murdering's most famous murder. Um, yeah, as soon as I started getting into Dutch Schultz, I figured, why not just do an episode on this guy ending in his death by murdering? Because he plays, he's such an important part of this time period of the uh, uh, mob history, and he's all interconnected with all these guys in murdering in one way or another. Maybe not so much, say, Abrellis and Jacob Shapiro. And those types of guys, but uh, Lepke and uh, Lucky Luciano and Albert Anastasia, he's he's all interconnected with these guys, more of the higher up end of the, uh, I guess, uh, Murder, Inc. Uh, apparatus. So uh, give us a little bit of background on Dutch. Yeah, Arthur si- Simon Flagenheimer. Sorry, that name is never going to make me not laugh. Yes, that was uh, Dutch's actual name. Uh, was was uh born to uh German Jewish immigrants on August uh six uh nineteen o uh nineteen o four. His father would end up abandoning the family when he was uh quite young, and this would traumatize Dutch for the rest of his life. Like up until the point where, when people would ask him about his father, he would make up stories like his father was like, oh, he was a really important businessman, and he was doing stuff overseas, and um. I believe it's something that just he kept with him for the rest of his life. This um, trust issues or maybe sense of abandonment issues. Uh, I mean, that would be traumatizing, you know, any time period in history. Your father just picks up and leaves and doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Um, This inevitably. Yeah. So Dutch would, you know, grow up and he would be involved in like petty crimes and fights and things of that nature. By the 1920s, Dutch would work as a bouncer for uh, a speakeasy for a gentleman named uh, Joey uh, No. Uh, Joey took a shine to Dutch because of his uh, 
you you recognize pretty quickly that Dutch was a pretty brutal and ruthless person, which we're going to get into uh, details uh, quite shortly. And yeah, before you know it, uh, him and Joey were you know opening up joints together, and this is kind of when Dutch starts uh, getting into serious uh, criminal activity and. Yeah, they would even use their own trucks, uh, so it would cut out all the transportation costs that would be involved in, you know, just transporting the liquor uh, at the time. And Dutch would actually, you know, get, like you mentioned, I remember one of the episodes you were mentioning some grocery chain store where they have like the managers have to work on the floor and then they have to work in every yeah. department before they move up to the higher office. This is kind of what Dutch is doing here. Like he literally would go on these trucks ride shotgun to these trucks to uh I believe it was Union City, New Jersey, where this guy would make the booze for them. And he would be part pretty much from the entire process and seeing like the booze getting made and riding shotgun in the trucks to it getting delivered and, you know, playing uh, you know, uh, patrolmen basically. Yeah, it's really amazing that um, you know, Dutch he's in the the business side, but he's also in the sort of the head cracking side anybody who can do both of those things in the criminal element is going to go far let's talk a little bit about moving forward some of the gang wars that are going on during this time this time is definitely an era of gang wars oh 100 percent. because once prohibition you know came into effect there's just so much money to be made off illegal booze and everyone was looking to make a quick buck and you know, some of these gangs were more successful than others. Uh, so the No and Dutch gang, which is what I'm going to be calling it, ends up getting into conflict with the uh, John, I guess you can call it the Rock Brothers uh, gang. It was John and Joe Rock. Um, a lot of the time how these prohibition gangs would work is they would force other speakeasies to uh, sell their booze or they would force other gangs to like buy booze off them which they would later in turn go sell at the different speakeasies or their own speakeasies and john who was the older brother you know initially they both said no you know bugger off dutch bugger off no like we're not doing any business with you and then john realizes you know what maybe you know i'll buy some booze off you guys whatever you know let's try to keep it uh keep this from breaking up into conflict joe uh joey though the younger brother he says screw that like i refuse to do it and dutch and no saw an opportunity you know what we got to set an example out of this guy and they kidnap the young they kidnap joey the younger brother and they beat him up to a bloody pulp and they hang him up by a meat hook and i guess in one of the more uh disgusting moments i've ever read about in uh mob history is apparently they when he was hanging up by this meat hook they had uh, i guess gathered a uh, gonorrhea um discharge bandages from a local hospital how they would get these hand get their hands on these things I'll, i don't know but they did and they wrapped it around his eyes and basically made him blind like while this was all going on his his family is like calling dutch in the note dutch and no like we want you know we want our son back we want our son back and dutch said well okay well it's going to cost like thirty five thousand dollars, which the family ends up paying but uh joey for the rest of his life was 
blind and partially crippled because of this, uh, because of what Dutch and uh, No did. And I would say, yeah, this event pretty much secured their reputation in the uh, Prohibition era gangsters as being like one of the most disgusting and ruthless out of them all. You really start to see during the Prohibition era, it's the it separates the the big leagues from the minor leagues. A, a lot of people seem to have gotten involved in in illegal alcohol and the illegal alcohol trade, but just because it was a a young industry and anybody could get into it. And then you, you got like the big time criminals who got involved and they pushed out all the little guys. We're going to talk a little bit now about a, a side character in Dutch's story, but he is really important. A, a guy named who goes by the name of Vincent Mad Dog Call. Just to kind of put in perspective, like the 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 Noel Schultz gang or the Dutch uh, No Gang, whatever you want to call it. Um, at this point, like they were the only gang that could rival the interconnected crime family, uh, Italian crime families, and. I was just thinking about this uh, um, just from researching this time period. Like, it still shocks me in this, like, short kind of little window. You have, like, the likes of, like, Dutch and Lepke and uh, other Jewish gangsters that we talked about. And, you know, combined together, they're just as powerful as the Italians. And I'm pretty sure that there's no point, other point in American history except for this short window where that could be said. Um, yeah, so... When Schultz uh, moves, uh, Schultz decide, Schultz and Null decide, like, we're going to move out of the Bronx. We're going to expand our operation. So they end up moving into Manhattan, which uh, gets them into conflict with the gentleman that we talked about earlier, Jack Legs Diamond. And by, by extension, the rest of the Irish Mafia. And what ends up happening initially in this in this conflict is Joey No um ends up getting shot several times in front of a speakeasy uh he survives but he ended up his uh, wounds would end up getting infected uh and he would die uh, on November 21st uh, 1928 um this obviously made Schultz you know this guy was he took him under his wing he was kind of like a father figure to him in a lot of ways he was his mentor um and obviously made Schultz very uh, mad. So he waited a little bit uh, to strike revenge, but he ended up getting it uh, where Jack Legs Diamond was shot several times in front of outside of a restaurant. Uh, we talked about that on the Jack Leg Diamond episode. If you guys want more details about uh, the crazy life of Jack Legs Diamond and basically when Jack Legs Diamond was at the hospital at the time, Dutch moves his way into uh that area of the Manhattan region and becomes even more powerful. But then this leads to Dutch having to deal with an internal conflict with the fellow lunatic, as you mentioned earlier, Vincent Mad Dog Cole. Um, it's yeah, it's interesting, just a little kind of a side bit during this whole time, because it, it's going to relate to when we start getting into a little bit more detail about Vincent Mad Dog Cole is Schultz Randall's gang he paid them via uh, salary. So it wasn't like most of these gangs at the time worked out. You get a base on a percentage of like how much illegal booze did we sell? Or how much uh, uh, illegal gambling money did we bring in? Schultz just paid guys with like a monthly salary. 
which I thought was pretty interesting. Nobody else was doing that. The Italians weren't doing that. And from my understanding, none of the other Jewish gangs were doing that. Let's talk a little bit more about this this key character of Mad Dog Cole, because he does have a big part to play in not only Dutch Schultz's story, but moving basically the whole American mafia forward. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, uh, um, like when uh, Jack was sorry, when um, Dutch was able to take care of Jack Lake Diamond, Jack Lake's Diamond, he started having internal conflict. Uh, Vincent Mad Dog Cole was uh, was a young up and coming hood that uh, Dutch took a liking to because he saw a lot of similarities between him and himself. I mean, they were both like stone cold sociopaths and pretty much willing to do anything uh yeah like i pointed out earlier dutch hired him to be like a hitman and an enforcer um but it, the problem was the th- the qualities that made mad dog a good gangster or made mad dog like appealing to dutch you know the fact that he was psychotic and he was willing to pretty much do anything um led into direct conflict with dutch because it's hard to control individuals like that you know Sometimes you get you strike a perfect balance where Dutch he's he's just the right amount of psychopath, but he's able to somewhat keep it under control to be able to run a criminal empire where Mad Dog wasn't able to really keep it enough keep it under control and he, he wasn't gonna take orders from anyone really. Um so he starts doing uh, starts doing his own thing and Dutch starts telling him it's like you can't be doing this and as I pointed out earlier, Dutch paid his uh, fellow soldiers with a salary. Uh, so when Dutch went to go to confront Mad Dog about uh, his erotic behavior, apparently Mad Dog like freaked out on him and said, you know what? You're going to make me an equal partner. Otherwise, I'm just going <laughs> to form my own gang. And, uh, you know, Dutch was probably... I can only imagine Dutch at this time. <laughs> like, really? Like, are you, do you know who I am? You're telling... You're making demands to me. He must have been flabbergasted. Um and that's basically what Mad Dog does. He forms his own gang, and it leads to like one of the bloodier wars in, uh, in organized crime history, especially at least in the New York region that I've read about. I think it ends up with like fifty people who end up getting killed in this war, and it's shooting on the you know in the open streets. Even like Mad Dog's brother, his own brother, gets killed out. Uh, was one of the first victims. Um, eventually, this ends up leading to. Uh, how uh mad dog got his uh his nickname and basically there was a hit going there was uh, mad dog was trying to take out some of like dutch's guys and what ended up happening was he does like a drive-by ends up hitting one of the young kids that were playing nearby and one of them ends up dying i think two of them ended up getting injured and then from this point on, I believe it was the mayor of New York at the time, or it was the governor, called him a mad dog. And this is how he got the nickname Mad Dog Cole. Um, yeah, so this ends up going to court. And it's funny, like he hired a pretty good lawyer and he denied it from, denied it obviously that he had anything to do with killing this kid killing these kid killing this kid uh the only thing he ended up saying was like oh i wish i could rip the throat out or the guy that actually killed the kid he'd be ripping his own throat out but that is neither here nor there the case there wasn't a there wasn't really a ton of evidence um against him so he 
and ends up getting thrown out of court. And Mad Dog just ends up going back to uh, what he does. And should I talk about him getting hired by Maranzano? I think it's one thing that's really interesting about Dutch is hiring these people on on a payroll. I think it shows you the really different sides of organized crime. There's some organized crime where they have a revenue stream, like through be it illegal drugs or be it, in this case, illegal alcohol or in uh, other circumstances, it's construction. The money's coming from somewhere. But then there's other situations where these crews are just kind of freelancers who are trying to get into any scam they want to. And you don't want to pay them a salary because otherwise those guys are going to sit around and drink coffee all day because they otherwise they'd have nothing to do. We really start to see that there's a lot of different facets to organized crime. Yeah, maybe the idea we mentioned earlier in the, the previous episode of Murder Inc. They at least at the very least they were paying like a retainer. Maybe this is an idea that they they took from Dutch. I I don't know for sure about that, but I mean it's it's highly possible. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You don't want these guys. You need when you when you need guys, you want to have them yeah. available. Not tracing down every, you know, shaking down every bookmaker and candy store owner and to- on the main street. You you want them waiting to do jobs. But if it was in another circumstance where you where the crews are trying to shake down candy stores, you don't want them sitting in the bar when they should be out shaking down. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, no, it makes sense, right? Um, yeah, and I guess so they they kind of quickly talk about how Mad Dog Cole gets out of the picture is, you know, one one thing that Mad Dog Cole did to make money uh, when he formed his own gang was to kidnap uh, fellow gangsters, <laughs> like you know, bro- like fellow brothers of gangster bosses, or even sometimes bosses themselves, and ask for ransoms, and obviously. They'd pay it, right? Because where are they going to go? They can't go to the cops. So obviously this didn't make many friends for uh, Mad Dog Cole and Dutch and a couple other bosses, but a 50 grand grand, uh, bounty on his head. And what ended up happening is they they saw him at like a phone booth. uh, I believe it was in front of a restaurant. And a couple of the Dutch's men... um, Saw him there and they came out with Tommy guns and shot him up. I think it was hit him 15 times and or 20 times and 15 of the bullets went right through him. And but that's the quick rundown. You can't really tell the Dutch Schultz story without mentioning Mad Dog Cole and that trial and kind of how they met and how the breakup happened and his death. Yeah, it seems like Mad Dog came up with Dutch and then. They broke apart, but it shows that all this interconnectivity and especially interconnectivity into all different facets of the mafia. Dutch ends Mad Dog's run. But um, what were some of the rackets that Dutch was involved in? Yeah, when Prohibition was starting to come to an end, like Dutch uh, started looking for other revenue, like other ways of making money. Um one of the uh one of the more brilliant things he did is he muscled his way into the Harlem numbers racket. Uh I believe it was I can't remember her name, but it was this it was this uh black woman that was running this numbers racket. 
apparently she held L for quite some time and like eventually ended up ended up giving in. Um Dutch also he also hired this guy Otto Berman, I guess his his version of Meyer Lansky, and they um be, came up with this like he was like a math numbers whiz type of guy, and he came up with this this is above my pay grade, but basically the scheme or working with the numbers so that it would basically maximize the amount of money that they were getting from those numbers and paying as little as they possibly can. And the and the numbers uh scheme, if anybody is not familiar, and the numbers is basically just like a, is lottery back in the day. That's just what they called it. Um and obviously this guy was really important because from what I read, like Dutch was paying up ten grand a week and translated to nowadays money that that's almost one hundred fifty thousand dollars he was paying him a week to run this number scam from. <laughs> so you could imagine the type of money that was getting brought in. Steve here. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network, featuring great shows like James Early's Key Battles of American History podcast and many other great shows. Go over to ParthenonPodcast.com to learn more. And here is a quick word from our sponsors. Just recently, one of the lottos, I think it was the Powerball, was over a billion dollars. And that was <laughs> the purse was a billion dollars. And I can't, the government takes a certain percentage of the sales of the tickets. So we're talking about billions with the B of dollars that people have put into this, into this, I mean, the numbers and essentially, like you said, the numbers is the, is a, basically the lottery. They're almost exactly the same. That's an insane amount of money. And like you said, let alone legalized sports gambling today. I mean, even given inflation and everything, I think we probably gamble more than they did back then because there's so many more opportunities to gamble. But they were still doing a lot of gambling back then as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. And the, what was the other industry that Dutch ended up getting involved in, too, was, uh, was the service industry and the, especially the unions. I don't, I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, but I guess it's worth like mentioning again. Like back in the day, it's, it seems like from everything I've read, there was like a union for everything. He basically, he set up his own like association called the Metropolitan Restaurant and Cafeteria Owners Association. Uh, um, it's basically like, you know, you join this, so you join my association or this is going to happen. This is what he would actually do to people. Like he would send his like goons in there to stink bomb uh, restaurants like during rush hour. So people just wouldn't be able to eat. I know that sounds like, oh, it's like something out of high school. But, you know, nobody's eating there and they're not paying. Then the restaurant's going to shirt close down. Right. Um you know, with the backing of like the different unions too, he would demand, he would get the workers to start demanding like ridiculous pay increases to the point where, you know, the restaurant is just not going to be profitable. And then, you know, if all that didn't work, he would send his real, like real tough goons and start doing physical harm to like these restaurant owners that they didn't end up joining this association. Like, you know, this is textbook extortion. You know, this is, uh, this is the reason why some of these people, they look up to the mob guys and I just don't get it, man. Like a lot of these restaurant owners, they're just like trying to make a living 
you know, that's all they're doing. They're just opening up a restaurant, trying to make a living. And you have this crazy lunatic Dutch who threatening to kill them because he won't pay the mafia tax. It's just, how do you look up to these guys? I don't, I don't get it. I'll never understand how people do, but you know, a lot of people do. It, in a way, though, that one thing that's, I don't know if admirable is the, the right word for it, but surprising that somebody came up with the idea that he squeezed the owners and he squeezed labor, which the mafia will start to go more for taking on, squeezing the owners through labor, where Dutch, but just basically wrung out as much money out of both of them. And talking about <laughs> money... Uh, we've talked a lot about money and death and death and taxes go together. He winds up getting into some tax issues, which a lot of mobsters wind up getting into tax issues. What was Dutch's problem with his taxes? Well, in, in the 1930s, this is when Tommy is, Thomas Dewey ends up showing up on the stage and he starts going after People like Dutch, he starts going after people like Lepke, he starts going after people like Jacob Shapiro and all these lucky Luciano, which I mean, we could probably, we'll probably end up doing a whole episode on just Thomas Dewey and lucky Luciano, that trial, because it is, it's very uh, controversial how that all went down, but uh, that's not really uh, for this episode here. But, you know, Dewey was just going after all these mob guys, didn't like any of them. Um Based, yeah, so when Dutch was indicted on like federal like income tax evasion, he ran away. He ran up to he ran in uh ran uh upstate to Albany in hopes of finding like if well if I get arrested here, you know, hopefully the jury doesn't know me as well, and I can convince them that I'm something that I'm not. Because I'm sure if he got uh, arrested in his neighborhood where he was. There's not, there's not a chance that anybody in the jury is going to, you know, think favorably of them because they know who Dutch is. First trial for income tax evasion, it ended up in, a, it was a hung jury. Um, everything that I read and a lot of people speculated was because Dutch was bribing members. Uh, and probably, let's be honest, that's exactly probably what was happening. As you saw, he, as I pointed out earlier, is paying a guy $10,000 a week uh, to run his number scam. So it's not like Dutch didn't have money. Um, and leading up to, I believe, leading up to his second trial uh, for income tax evasion, it was going to take into place. It was going to take place in a, take place in Malone, New York. Um, and uh, which is, was looking it up on the map i guess it's like the more of like kind of maybe it's not country anymore but at the time it was more like country area of new york uh state um dutch came up with this pretty brilliant uh pr scheme where he would just go around presenting himself as a good old boy he was donating money to hospitals he'd uh, give money to small businesses give toys to sick kids and um i gotta give it to him and it worked <laughs> it uh he ended up being found innocent of, uh, you know, the income tax evasion charges. Uh, the mayor of New York, apparently he was like so outraged over the verdict. He put a demand that like if Dutch ever returned to New York City, he'd just be arrested immediately because, you know, they could arrest him for anything, really. It's like it's Dutch. He's good. He's committing some kind of crime. Um, and this basically forced Dutch to move all his operations to uh, New Jersey, New York. Um and 
I just like it to myself. Like, imagine like a mayor just made such a declaration, like regards to getting rid of like violent criminals. I mean, like, you know, like you guys are just not welcome in the city. We know you're committing crimes. We'll find you on anything, and we're just going to arrest you the second you walk into the city. Now let's bring in uh, Lucky Luciano into the story. Because Dutch, he's hobnobbing with this highest echelon of New York and really American crime. And we have at this point, the commission is starting to form and uh, the National Crime Syndicate and all of this stuff is really coming about. But Dutch has brought a lot of heat as I think as honestly as innovative as starting the Arthur Flegenheimer defense fund and all that stuff was it's bringing, putting the spotlight on some things that the big wigs don't want spotlights put on. Yeah. Well, I mean, Dutch, I mean, he was kind of, he was, you know, pissing people off like higher up and he's also pissing people off in his own organization where, you know, as these like, as the legal problems were mounting for Dutch, he ended up starting like this, cutting back on his employees' salaries and using it, as you pointed out, the Arthur Flagenheimer Defense Fund. Sorry, that's always going to make me laugh. Um, To help pay for these legal costs. And this sounds ridiculous, but apparently at one point, like, the people in Dutch's organization, like, rented out a hall and, like, went on strike. So, like... We're not doing any more work. We have to pay this this extra tax to pay for your legal problems or something like that. And he's just like, all right, all right, guys. All right. Forget about we're not paying for the tax anymore. Just how, how crazy is that, eh? Like the gangsters go on strike. It really it was big. It was big business. Now, this is the point where Dutch really starts. I mean, if you didn't think he was going off the rails before, this is where he really starts going off the rails. And Dutch is going to make some some decisions, and that's going to cause the higher-ups in organized crime like the commission to make some decisions. What, what happens with – where does Dutch take all this? Okay, so Bo Reinberg, who was kind of like – he was uh, like Dutch's – right hand muscle or whatever when all this legal trouble was going on he he got into contact with lucky luciano and basically they both worked out a deal where they would take over all of dutch's operations once he went to jail because everyone was fairly convinced that he was not going to get off these charges dutch schultz for god's sakes like he's not going to get off these charges um and what what lucky really wanted to do is he wanted to kind of break up his rackets and like take a fair take most of them himself and then spread it throughout the italian families um i think thinking like if once we get dutch out of the picture then we don't there's literally no one that we have to worry about in terms of organized crime at least from the like uh, the uh, the italian half of it that anyone can challenge us once dutch is out of here then there's no one that can challenge us it's only you know us fighting ourselves really um that's the way i interpret it i think he was thinking like i can make personal gain out of this and uh overall the italian mafia long term is gonna gain from this right we'll take out our last enemy really um but what ended up happening was you know like as we talked about earlier dutch gets off the charges so people weren't expecting that um and as soon as dutch got off the charges he you know he got into contact with lucky luciano like 
demanding a meeting with the commission to help clarify the uh, situation. And apparently Lucky explained to Dutch, he's like, oh, no, we were just holding down the fort for you guys, like fort for you, Dutch, until you came back. And I just imagine Dutch's face is just like listening to this and being like, I'm, oh, my God, I have no choice. I have to like, I have to like pretend like I believe this. Um but he didn't have to do that with Bo Weinberg. Apparently, Bo Weinberg, as soon as Dutch got off the charges, I think it was in a couple of weeks, he went missing and they never found his, they never found him. Dutch has been in a lot of legal troubles and he comes up and st- he, I guess when you're in that situation and you're in legal troubles, you could go on the straight and narrow or you could kill the prosecutor who's who's been hounding you all these years. What does Dutch make? What decision does Dutch make to do? Well, so the commission, because Thomas Dewey was going after everyone. They they held a meeting um, to talk about, like, well, what are we going to do about Thomas Dewey, right? And there was different opinions of what to do with Thomas Dewey. Um, Lucky Luciano, and there's a wing of the commission that thought, we're not going to do anything with Thomas Dewey. Like we're just going to weather the storm and not try to try, try not to draw heat to each our, ourselves. Right. Where there was a wing that was in favor of, you know what, let's just kill Thomas Dewey. He seems to be the guy that's causing all these problems. We weren't having these problems before this guy showed up, but we just kill him. Maybe they'll just start going. They'll just go away again. You know, Dutch was in this wing, Albert Anastasia, thought the same thing and Jacob Shapiro thought, yeah, let's just let's just get rid of this guy. Um people might call me crazy, but I kind of from everything that I read, I I kind of agree with them where if they just get Dewey out of the picture, I I don't think a lot of this stuff that ends up happening ends up happening. But you know, maybe it brings more heat. Maybe it brings too much heat, but then you're going to have to find somebody who's like Thomas Dewey to replace Thomas Dewey. I just don't think you were going to find that guy. Thomas Dewey is a very unique individual. That's such a tough one. And I've gone back and forth on whether I think that that would have been a good idea to to take out Dewey. I think had they taken out Dewey, we would see a very different world come out of that. That doesn't become normalized then to kill prosecutors then we're talking about italy type stuff where in sicily where they're killing judges and uh prosecutors i think that the heat would have come down on them so hard that they would have had the entire government fbi cia irs everything and marines you name it coming down on them and i think in the in my estimation it was probably a good idea not to kill him just because the amount of heat that would have come down with that and it might not have even been through prosecutions i mean it could have been almost like clandestine sort of things. But I don't think that the government of that era would have let that go without serious, serious repercussions. But again, I mean, we're all in what if territory. Just to wrap up the story of Dutch today, let's set up the scene of Dutch's death. And then we'll start to get into what some of the fallout uh, with Dutch's death, because really, honestly, after this whole thing of wanting to kill Dewey and Dutch being overridden on this, you know, things are going to come to a head at that point. 
that it's not going to be all right. I shucks, I didn't get to uh, kill the most famous prosecutor. Something's going to come out of that. Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. Yeah, so the commission comes to a conclusion. It's like, yeah, okay, obviously we're we're not killing Dewey. It's nuts. We're not doing this. Apparently Dutch storms out of the meeting and says, you know what? I don't care what you guys say. I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, and there was like a kind of a moment pause. It's like, oh, is he being serious or not? And apparently the thing that confirmed to the commission that Dutch was dead serious that he was going to kill Dewey is apparently he asked Albert Anastasia to stake out uh Thomas Dewey's apartment. Uh, apparently, a little side note. Apparently, Albert actually did do this, and he was borrowed. He borrowed like a fellow mobster's baby, and was basically pushing her on a baby carriage and staring it to Dewey's apartment and staking him out, basically. And Albert went to the commission, and the commission said, "Okay, well, he's actually going to do this. He wasn't just like he wasn't just blowing smoke." And they had a meeting that lasted for like six hours, and they're like. All right, well, it's either Dewey or Dutch. And it's like, all right, we're going to take out Dutch. And, you know, the hammer went down and they hired out Murder Inc. to uh, take out Dutch Schultz. And then how does Dutch ultimately uh, meet his demise? On October 23rd, uh, 1935, while at the uh, Palace Chop House in New York, two gunmen entered the, the place uh, the via the uh, back of the restaurant and began to open fire they hit two of dutch's uh right hand right hand man you know two of his bodyguards uh one of them took a bullet to the neck and uh the other took a bunch of bullets uh close range neither of them died they ended up fighting back i think uh one of the uh murder inc assassins uh left one of the other ones there because he freaked out because they thought for sure that they were dead um he ended up running out to the restaurant apparently when one of uh, Abe's bodyguards was shooting at him as he's like running out of the restaurant down the street and like collapses on a trash can. Um, during this uh, melee, apparently Dutch was in the bathroom and got hit by a stray bullet uh, in the uh, chest region and uh, was demanding to call, uh, demanding his hitman to call hospital for him. Uh, you could actually see. Uh, He's not dead in this picture. You can actually see a picture of Dutch where he's like leaned over on the like um the one of the restaurant tables and he's uh, slowly uh bleeding out. Uh apparently when the ambulance showed up to pick up Dutch, they didn't have any painkillers, so all they could give him was brandy. Dutch demanded to uh uh I believe when he was uh, when they got him to the hospital, he demanded to have his last last rites uh by a catholic priest so and that's another thing in dutch's life that didn't really get into it's like he was jewish but it seems like to a degree he became a catholic um and kind of rejected his uh his uh judaism uh i think people at the time thought it was just like him trying to fit in with the italians but i think there was some i think there was some sincerity in it isn't that so strange that somebody who is a uh just a violent psychopathic murderer has a religious conversion uh it's so strange and like you said it wasn't a deathbed thing from my understanding no he, I, I think he was worried of like i think he was worried that he might be dying but this is um 
like but I didn't get into it. We didn't get into a ton of detail about um this, but it it's just something that kind of was always falling around Dutch where I like he seems to have really respected the Catholic religion and Catholicism in general uh, to a degree and where like I said there were a lot of the Italian guys thought he was just playing it up to fit in where a lot of other people thought there was so there was a fair amount of sincerity to it it'd be interesting to kind of really dig into that to see if we can find like a definitive answer was this just all phony baloney or was this a sincere uh conversion when dutch was slowly dying apparently he was like slipping in and out of consciousness and he i don't know i guess he kind of creates david lynch uh dialogue uh from say something like twin peaks because that it it just reads like it, it is just a stream of consciousness really like some of the things he was saying was a boy has never wept nor dashed a thousand kim you can play jacks and girls do that with a softball and do tricks with it this is kind of the stuff that he was talking about like oh oh dog biscuit and when he is happy he doesn't get snappy the boss himself yes i don't know i am sore i'm going up and i'm going and i'm going to give you honey if i can mother is the best and don't let satan draw you too fast <laughs> this and this you can look it up this is like literally there was a guy there was a woman there who was recording literally everything that dutch was saying and it's pages and pages and pages and pages of this stuff and it, i haven't read the play but apparently it was the last day of dutch schultz was turned into a play uh apparently it was a quite famous play where it i don't know if it's quite written in this type of style but it's um it's written kind of like stream of consciousness type style which is this that type of style of uh writing was starting to get popular at this time too if i'm not mistaken even after dutch died apparently he uh he left us something pretty interesting during his ramblings he mentioned that he had a seven million dollar fortune stashed away and you know if you adjusted it to today's money it'd be about 500 million dollars and apparently people are still hunting to this day for dutch's hidden treasure i'm sure he had money stashed i don't know about five million but it's somewhere or somebody found it didn't say anything you know like they, they, these guys keeping money under the mattress it seems like it'd probably be like a pretty typical thing yeah i have to imagine that you would think that you would hear of hordes getting found in manhattan tearing down a building or renovating a, a building but you don't hear about it that much. And maybe it is all talk that they have money stashed away. I mean, the one that we'll certainly talk about in the future is Jimmy, Jimmy Burke, who was uh, made famous by Robert De Niro in the movie Goodfellas. He wound up with all of the money from the Lufthansa uh, robbery, millions and millions of dollars. Nobody's ever found it. And I'm assuming that the family has it. Because you think about the amount of revenue that he was bringing in. Yeah, $7 million is a lot of money any which way you cut it. But I mean, that that's like, you know, like a safety. That's, I don't know, that's kind of like an insurance policy with the amount of revenue that Dutch was bringing in. I mean, that's not a packet of bills, though, stuffed in the drywall in your house. I mean, that's like a pallet of money. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. So you know, I just think I think somebody close to him knew where it was, or had maybe it wasn't quite 
$7 million, but he had money stashed away. They took it, never said anything about it. It's not like Dutch is going to use it anyways. It could have been the mafia for all we know. You know, they interrogated somebody in Dutch's gang, found out where the money was, and they took it for themselves. It's very possible. What's your final takeaway on Dutch? What What do you want people to leave with? What uh, thinking about Dutch and the the impact that Dutch made on the American mafia? Like, I got to say personally, like Dutch is one of the more polarizing character like figures that I've read about uh, for me personally. Like there's a part of me that just finds him absolutely disgusting and beyond reproach. But there's a part, there's parts of me that I kind of, I kind of respect him from a distance. You know, the Dutch never tried to be like anything other than a gangster, even right way, even like the way he dressed, like they would joke about, you know, they'd make fun of Dutch because he dressed like a slob and, you know, he dressed like a street guy, really, you know, like Meyer Lansky tried to, uh, tried to play this guy where he was just like a numbers guy and he was like a gambling guy and like Frank Costello tried to be like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just a businessman and. Arnold Rothstein tried to like pretend like he was in part of high society wearing fancy suits and having the proper etiquette where like Dutch never never did that never t- pretended to be anything than what he was he was a gangster and like, I don't know the the impression that I get of Dutch is I may I obviously wouldn't have liked the guy but I would have known where I could probably have a conversation with Dutch and I could probably know where he stands on any given issue I think he was generally an honest guy where it's just like, this is this what you're getting paid in terms of your salary. If you don't like it, leave, you know, and if you get and if you steal from me, you're going to get killed. You know, like, I don't think any of that was like up in the air. I don't where like a lot of these other talent, like a lot of these like Italian mob guys, you, it's all kind of like this, I don't know, backstabbing, you know, get your best friend to to you know take you out type thing where i mean dutch would just do it himself i mean and to a certain degree i think there's i don't know there's something to respect about that in comparison to how some of these other guys acted well thanks everybody for joining us and join us next time as we continue to discuss the incredible history of murder incorporated we'll take a deeper look into the leadership of murder inc and the ultimate collapse of this criminal organization We'll see you next time, but don't forget to tell your friends about organized crime and punishment. That's one of the biggest ways to help us grow this podcast and to let other people know about the show and tell your friends so that your friends can become friends of ours. Yeah, forget about it. You've been listening to Organized Crime and Punishment, a history and crime podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, find links to social media, and how to support the show, go to our website, a to zhistorypage.com. Become a friend of ours by sending us an email to crime at a to zhistorypage.com. All of this and more can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next time on Organized Crime and Punishment. Forget about it.
The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.